Good evening. It's wonderful to see so many of you here at St. Paul's this evening, and please know that you are very, very welcome. My name is Mark Oakley, and I'm the Chancellor here at the Cathedral, and I'll introduce our two speakers in just a moment. But if you haven't been to one of our events before, I'll just quickly tell you how it works. In a moment, uh, Marion Partington and Lucy Winkett will explore forgiveness and whether it is a journey to freedom. Marion will talk about whether it takes a special person to forgive terrible harm done to them or whether we can all learn to do it. And Lucy will then reflect theologically, looking at how the cycle of confession, forgiveness and absolution offer an invitation to freshness. After their talks of around 20 minutes each, we will then focus on your questions and please do send lots of them in. If you've got a question at any stage throughout the evening, you write it please on the back of your program and then you hold it up to be collected. And they'll be collected until around 7.40 please, please keep them brief and keep them legible. We're also taking questions via Twitter using the hashtag forgiveness. And if you'd like to send us your question uh, through your tablet, just type in your question and include hashtag forgiveness and we will find it. Your questions then get sent up to me here at the laptop and I will put as many of them as I can to Marion and Lucy. We'll end at 8 o'clock and then there's a bookstall here where you'll be able to buy the speaker's books and they've kindly said that they will sign copies too at the table over there. So now it gives me great pleasure to introduce our speakers to you. Marion Partington went through what must be the greatest loss most of us can imagine. Her younger sister Lucy was abducted and killed by Fred and Rose West in 1973, and for 20 years her family had no idea what had happened to her until the police contacted them to say that her remains had been found in the West's basement. She says her own long, painful journey to forgiveness began in murderous rage, and she will tell us something about that tonight and what she believes forgiveness means and does. Her book, If You Sit Very Still, about her sister, her loss, and what happened through the years, was Rowan Williams's book of the year in 2012, and I personally can see why. If you're a human being, it has words in it from which you just can't retreat. Marion now works with the Forgiveness Project in prisons and elsewhere, collecting and sharing stories of forgiveness to build understanding and enable people to think about the radical path. There's an information stall about the project's work here to see after the event, and we're taking a retiring collection for them as well. And it's a great privilege to have the project and Marion with us this evening.
as it is our second speaker, Lucy Winkett. Lucy is the rector of St. James's Piccadilly, among the first women to be ordained priest in the Church of England, she was the first to serve here at St. Paul's. And she was here for 10 years, latterly as presenter with oversight of worship. And during that time, that included many very sensitive national memorial services. She's a founding advisor for the public think tank Theos a long-standing contributor to Radio 4's Thought for the Day, and to my mind, one of the very best reasons to keep it. She wrote the Archbishop of Canterbury's Lent book for 2010, Our Sound is Our Wound, Contemplative Listening in a Noisy World. And she writes and speaks and debates on a wide range of issues, reflecting on culture, art, gender, and of course, religion. Lucy and I have known each other from before we were ordained. In those days, I had a narrow waist and an open mind. But over the years, they seemed to have changed places. Very annoyingly, Lucy has kept both of hers and always brings a perceptive light to some of the most difficult matters of our lives. And we're delighted she's here tonight to speak about one of them. As a friend, I've always valued Lucy's presence as much as her insight. And that speaks very clearly, I think, about an integrity that is so needed in the public arena today. It's great to have you here, Lucy. But first, Marion Partington will introduce us to tonight's theme. So would you please join me in welcoming both our speakers. Forgiveness can be the most imaginative way of becoming free and offering freedom. It seems to involve giving up all hope of a better past. For me, freedom is ultimately a state of mind, a state of being, which allows us to be fully alive in the present moment, to be free to give and receive love, to be healed of all that keeps us from being naturally true naturally compassionate and fulfilled. It can't be willed, but we can line ourselves up for it with intention and humility. And we have to face what's in the way. There is a Greek word, soteria, which means to have a big heart, to breathe deeply, to be free, to be in full health. It is the word that was used to mean salvation in the New Testament. How can we be saved from our deluded, destructive, frozen stories? How can we move from stories that harm towards stories that heal? Sometimes words die. For me, forgiveness and sin have been difficult words, let alone the word God. They had become encrusted 
barnacled by eons of piety and had lost their original roots, their sense, their meaning. But part of my journey towards freedom has been to reclaim these words, to become less prejudiced towards them, to be able to say them and feel their meaning, to be moved by them, to know them within myself. Writing has become a way of allowing myself time to unthaw, to allow the right words to come, but also to accept that there were days when there were no words and the sky was dark. I have often felt that I was risking the disintegration of myself without the assurance that a new whole would emerge. It required solitude and silence, a prayerful, disciplined, patient, watchful stance, a deep listening. It helped me to trust the creative process. It has been thrilling to come to appreciate that the poetic is often vitally important in the language of restoration and forgiveness. There seems to be an intense need to get to the bare roots of words, to refine, to redefine the vocabulary of restoration. My sister Lucy wrote poetry and prisoners have written poetry for the first time in response to our story. Poetry raises the register, speaks words of grace, and the word was made flesh. One of Canon David's self's definitions of sin, which resonates with me, is sin is a proud claim to be self-sufficient in life, claiming a total freedom for ourselves and the way we live. Yes, I have lived this selfish, hedonistic kind of freedom in my early adulthood and know the harm and destruction that it sows and reaps. I still live with the consequences known and unknown. It is not possible to change the actions of the past, but it is possible to experience that forgiveness can mean giving up or hope of a better past. 44 years ago, in 1973, Lucy was 21 and I was 25, and we both were both in our final year of studying English literature at university. Lucy was scholarly, religious, literary, and chaste. She had kindness, sensitivity, humor, warmth, wit, and a piercing intelligence. She claimed to do the opposite of those around her, mostly me. We loved T.S. Eliot's The Four Quartets and used to muse upon the phrase, the point of intersection of the timeless with time. Here we are akin. We gathered for Christmas with my mother. Five weeks earlier, Lucy had chosen to be received into the Catholic Church. We came from an agnostic background. On the 27th of December, she went to visit her friend Helen in Cheltenham. In her bag, she had a letter of application to post to the Courtauld Institute, where she had hoped to do a postgraduate study in medieval art. And she also had a medieval text, a dream vision called Pearl. This book helped me to find a shape for my book eventually. 
Lucy left Helen's house to catch the last bus home. She was never seen again. There began the excruciating long years of not knowing, the frozen silence where words could not be uttered. This is not to say that those words, those years were divide of, devoid of love, joy, growth, and giving birth, but that there was a deep layer of unresolved, unspoken, unfelt pain for which there was no words. It had almost become taboo to talk about Lucy as the years went by. There was an increasing fear that we would all die and never know what had happened to her. A void, avoidance, a void dance, hopping on one leg. But in the year of Lucy's disappearance, I also received a glimpse of the shining silence. It came as a dream. In the dream, Lucy came back and I asked her where she had been. She replied, I have been sitting in a water meadow. Then with a smile, she said, if you sit very still, you can hear the sun move. This image filled me with a profound feeling of peace, the kind that passeth understanding it has re remained deeply significant and real. In January 1994, I became a member of the Religious Society of Friends, a Quaker. Our worship is a silent waiting on God with occasional ministry. Around 1650, the founder, George Fox, exhorted, rend all veils and discern all deceit that the pure may come to life. Five weeks later, we began to hear news of bodies being dug up in the garden of 25 Cromwell Street, Gloucester. On March the 4th, Lucy's birthday, Fred West told the police that there were more bodies in the basement and that one of them was called Lucy. The shock, numbness and denial began to invade. I lit a candle and prayed that something good could come out of this, something that we could learn from. I went outside into the dark and cried out, please don't let me have to go through this on my own. But Lucy did. I pray that she was in a state of grace. Could she pray? Survivor's guilt is dangerous. Lucy's new label as West victim didn't feel right. I felt it was vital to reclaim her from the West and the media as my sister and to write about the beauty and aspirations of her life without denying the reality of her excruciating physical violation and demolition. She was abducted, gagged, raped, tortured and murdered. She was beheaded, dismembered and buried in a hole with leaking sewage pipes in the basement. I needed to rehumanize her, to salvage the sacred. The American poet Gary Snyder wrote a definition of sacred. That which helps take us out of our little selves into the larger self 
of the whole universe. Then I received the second dream. In the dream, the pathologist pointed to a pink sack in the corner. It was full of numbered bones, which assembled themselves into a full-size skeleton. As I embraced the bones, they became Lucy in flesh, and I remembered what she was like to hold. The next morning, I wondered where her bones were. They were being kept for an exhibit for the defense and we still couldn't have a funeral. I felt the need for this to become real. The police enabled this to happen. I went with two friends to a chapel of rest in Cardiff. Inside the full-size coffin were two boxes. As we drew nearer, I lifted the lid of the smaller box and a feeling of strength came over me. I gasped at the beauty of her skull, which shone like burnished gold. I lifted it with great care and tenderness and kissed her brow. Later that year, I attended a silent seven-day Chan Chinese Zen Buddhist retreat. On the fourth day, I saw clearly that there were four ways of dealing with the unthawing, unresolved pain. I could dump it on others. The extreme expression of this would be murder. Let it corrode and corrupt me. The extreme expression of this would be suicide. Try to deny it and carry on as if nothing had happened, which wasn't possible. But then, I saw that the most creative, imaginative way forward would be to move towards forgiveness, but I had no idea how this could happen, only that it offered hope, healing, and mystery. I made a vow to try and forgive the Wests. But when I came home from the retreat, I had an overwhelming physical experience of murderous rage. At that moment, I was capable of killing. In other words, I was not so separate from the Wests. I saw within my heart the huge capacity for destruction, for evil. This was the first step towards connecting with the Wests as human beings, the first step towards forgiveness. There is a place deep within that knows that violence can only breed more violence, and this is where it must stop. The rawness of the wound stripped away all that is unimportant. The deepest reality of what it means to be human was laid bare. In the shattering, I yearned for healing, I was alive in a way that I had never been alive before, alive to human possibilities, divine possibilities. It says, just wait, stay with the pain, let it burn you into a place of renewal, stay true to what is actually happening, avoid nothing, that's where the teaching seems to be. I attended the committal trial for Rosemary West. It was hard to connect her with the endless graphic details of sexual depravities and brutality, 
that were read out hour after hour for five days by a barrister. But when I heard her voice on the tape recordings during the police interviews, I began to get a picture of her. I tried to imagine growing up in an environment where fear and abuse were the main components. Her behaviour was best bestial and brutal in its attempt to make her victims experience a feeling of extreme pain, humiliation and impotence. I began to imagine that perhaps she had been subjected to these experiences in the past. There was one little glimmer of insight into her imagination that both touched my heart and disturbed me. It was her attempt to lure another victim, Alison Chambers, to come and live in Cromwell Street by promising her a life in the country at the weekends on their farm where she could be able to ride horses and write poetry. I began to sweat. This was Lucy's world. I learnt that they had been brutalised in their childhoods by sexual abuse, violence and neglect. I soon got the feeling that Rosemary's deviant ignorance sprang from the fact that she had rarely known beauty, truth or love. I began to understand her need to have absolute control, the deep violent rage of impotence and ignorance. This is not to forgive her actions, but to realise that when you are brutalised, you lose a sense of value, the beauty, the sacredness of the gift of your life. You become disconnected from the source of your being. I was learning how to find compassion for myself and to believe that others can forgive me. I was exploring my own rotting pile of mistakes and seeing that it was also my compost that had meaning, that it doesn't have to remain repulsive, something I can't acknowledge, something I want to edit out. It is actually part of who I have been and I have to develop another relationship with it. I realised my own deep need for forgiveness and how that led me to moments of compassion for the Wests. In the year 2000, my inner journey led to a moment of authentic compassion for Rosemary West, again towards the end of a Chan retreat. I was struggling and despairing of ever being free. In an interview with Chan Master Sheng Yen, he said, softly, just know that your suffering is helping to relieve the suffering of others. I returned to my cushion to sitting very still. I thought of Rosemary West. Her moral lens was utterly distorted by years of sexual abuse by her brother and father. She had been abducted from a bus stop and raped when she was 15. She was 19 years old when she and Fred abducted Lucy from a bus stop. In my mind, I said, half-heartedly, I hope that my pain might help you in some way. Then, the most profound realisation of the depth and extent of her suffering that she has created for herself and so many others was revealed. 
In that moment, my heart was awakened. There was a felt, embodied saturation of comprehending. I saw the complex cage of her fear, rage, shame, guilt, and unresolved grief. Then there was the reality of being locked away until she dies, being hated and demonized by our society and by fellow prisoners, her family being wrecked and fragmented. There was a searing feeling of her isolation and shame. In that moment, my own deepest shame surfaced again and was faced. In that moment, my pain went away. The word forgiving became alive, forgiving. Blame, I am feeling this pain because of you, changed to freedom. My pain is suffered aloud for you that you may be free of whatever caused you to harm in the first place. The unexpected byproduct of this empathy with her suffering was a feeling of being freed, being more alive, released in some way. I feel a deep need not to write people off, not to demonize them. I feel a need to find a way of somehow embracing, bringing into love people who have excluded themselves in many ways by their violent, atrocious actions. This feeling has grown through my restorative justice work in pr many prisons over the years. This work was unexpected. It was as if there was an outer shape for my inner experience. In 2004, the first exhibition of the Fig Forgiveness Project opened in the OXO Gallery. The stories had been collected by the founder, Marina Cantacuzino. The exhibition is called The F Word. Some of us met in a cafe next door and realized that we had all been treading a rather lonely, treacherous path, but we could now rejoice in the birth of a joining up of purpose. I have been privileged to work in prisons for the last 10 years with our program, Restore. We use stories from victims and perpetrators to explore the limits and possibilities of forgiveness, considering alternatives to resentment, retaliation and revenge. Each story expresses the cost and gift of this process. The participants tell their stories in response. The work is something about undoing labels and finding the embrace of a shared humanity. More recently, we began to work with women in Eastwood Park Prison. It was in a creative writing <coughs> follow-on day that I found myself working with Lisa, who was unable to start. I sat by her and she pointed to a picture of a seashore. Touching on the horizon, she said, that makes me feel weird. Then she began to write about a walk on a beach. The next part of the exercise was to write I am in front of the phrases, then to write down what they felt that they were not, then blend them together. Here is Lisa's poem. I am the waves crashing against the rocks. 
I am the sound of birds, but I am not free. I am the feel of the sand and the shells. I am not on drink. I am the nice, clear, blue water. I am not just a nasty person. I am the horizon. In 2004, I wrote Rosemary West a letter. Here is an extract. Please know that I do not feel any hostility towards you, just a sadness, a deep sadness that all this happened. Our lives are connected. May you be less burdened by fear. I sent it four years later when I felt that I did not expect a reply. She did not reply, and it was requested that I made no further correspondence. Once in prison, a man was gazing at a little woven bag made for me by Lucy when she was eight years old. I've used this bag in my work in prisons for some years, passing it round when I'm speaking of Lucy. The man said that he saw light shining from it and that he didn't usually have experiences like that. His name is Peter Wolfe and is one of the, our storytellers speaking from a reformed perpetrator perspective. We have since worked together for many years. I told him that Lucy's name means light. I feel deep gratitude for the love and grace that nourishes and upholds this continuing journey. I have tried to keep an open heart and not turn away. And why would I want to do that? It is because I have experienced the sacredness of my own life. And in that realization, nobody can be excluded. Let me end with one of Lucy's poems. She always was more succinct than I. Thank you, Lucy. Your life and death have deepened my knowledge of love. I will try to pass that on. Things are as big as you make them. I can fill a whole body, a whole day of life with worry about a few words on one scrap of paper. And yet, the same evening, looking up, can frame my fingers to fit the sky in my cupped hands.
in some ways, as soon as we sit in a grand church like this, as soon as a person in a dog collar talks about forgiveness, in some ways, we're all lost. The operation of actual forgiveness is not best expressed in words declaimed from a pulpit, although that's usually the way we do hear about it. Actual forgiveness is more at home among the tears of bewilderment, uncertain and tentative yearning, than in the echoing certainty of a sermon or a lesson in morality. And so I suppose the first thing that I want to contribute is that although the Christian tradition has had a lot to say about forgiveness, the way we've often tried to say it has run and still runs the risk of distancing us from its revolutionary power in a life actually lived. It's not that there's a line called forgiveness and we're one side of it and Marion and others are somehow on the other side of it. As you've listened to Marion, I guess you'll have had a huge variety of reactions, some about her, probably mostly about you. You might be sitting there thinking, I couldn't do that. Or you might have been saying to yourself, I don't know what I'd do, but maybe I'd be able to do that. When his friends asked him how to pray, Jesus replied with a simple, direct, but rather ambitious set of things to say to God. And right in the middle of that prayer, the Lord's Prayer, is that fundamental linking of our being forgiven with the possibility that we might be able to forgive. Forgive us, we pray, as we forgive others. In my experience as a priest, forgiveness is a very complex dynamic that often causes people of faith a good deal of angst, a good deal of worry and guilt. Or, on the other hand, it seems like something that's just not relevant to a life lived where you're just getting on with things and doing your best. Forgiveness either seems impossibly tortuous or, on the other hand, kind of irrelevant. I see this at the baptism of a child. As part of the service, I will, on behalf of the church, ask the parents and godparents do you repent of your sins? I often see people shuffling about a bit when it gets to that. Mostly not because they're feeling bad, but because they're really trying hard to think of something that they might be sorry for. Well, I could have been nicer to her or him, they think, but basically I'm living a good life, not hurting anyone. Or on the other hand, pastorally, I spend time with people who are racked with a sense of over-responsibility for everything. People can feel racked about the melting of the ice caps, the existence of nuclear weapons, a famine far away, or simply everything they have ever done. If only I were a different person, they say, this might not be happening. 
these two extremes seem to me to be common, either basically feeling we're doing all right, not really responsible for things that are wrong, or living with the assumption that basically we're responsible for everything that's going wrong. Both are forms of avoidance, as is the making of forgiveness into a moral code that's somewhere between impossibly generous and, on the other hand, even unattractively pious. Forgiveness can become, in the amplified voice of the church, something of a blunt instrument that pounds away at us, Sunday by Sunday, dulling our sensitivity to the fundamental repentance that we are called to, almost preventing us from hearing the truly revolutionary path to freedom that a lifelong commitment to forgiveness can represent. How often should I forgive, asked Peter. As many as 77 times? 70 times seven. And this to the man who betrayed Jesus, denying him three times, leading to his execution. And then on the beach, Jesus asks him three times, do you love me? Reminding him by these three repeated questions of the worst thing he'd ever done going there, bringing it up again in order for the relationship to be restored. And so right at the beginning, I want to say that I don't think it's our job in the church to tell people to forgive. There is a timeliness about forgiveness, and for many, many people, it's not yet. It's not now. It can't be forced. And as far as possible, all the shoulds and oughts should themselves be banished from the conversation. And so I want to offer some reflections around three themes. Borrowed from the American writer and adapted Anne Lamott. The past, the truth and me. The past. How forgiveness works is inextricably caught with our attitude towards our past. It can be the distant past. I well remember when I was a priest on the staff here at St. Paul's, having a long conversation with an American tourist right here under the dome, just over there. He'd argued with his sister 40 years previously over their mother's will, and they hadn't spoken since. He was experiencing an unfocused yearning for reconciliation. He missed her, but was still angry with her, as he assumed she was with him, and he just didn't know where to start. It can also be the near past. Everything that Marion and I have said is already in the past. We can't change it. As soon as it's happened, it's already beyond our reach. And so just by speaking, I'm opening myself to my need for your forgiveness. The New Testament word in the Lord's Prayer, forgive us as we forgive them, is the verb aphemi, which carries the meaning to release, to set aside, to let go. Another word is also used for forgiveness, charizomai, 
in Jesus' story about the creditor forgiving the debt of two debtors in Luke's gospel, the creditor freely and without the debtors necessarily deserving it forgives the debt. In the sense of charism, there's more of a sense of gift, more like the English word, which has the sense of give in it to forgive. Both words used for forgiveness imply some space, even some distance, to be released, to be free. Key to any consideration of forgiveness, then, is our own attitude towards our past. Because we collect the evidence for the person that we actually are, rather than the person we'd like to be, from our life lived in time. How we deal with our past, personal and collective, is a huge question, and one that often causes us anxiety and strain. Daring to contemplate our past is obviously essential work in the cycle of confession, repentance, restoration. We can't change the past we've lived, or within that, the wrong that we've done. We're powerless to change it, and so we must deal with it another way. Without this fundamental recognition of our powerlessness to change the past, we can become caught in a pattern like the man at the pool at Bethesda in the fifth chapter of John's Gospel. You remember him, stuck in a cycle of repetitive, futile attempts to move while blaming everyone else for not releasing him. Like the person in John's Gospel story, this can last for 38 years. Or to coin a phrase, 30 times 38. The Croatian theologian Miroslav Volf thinks we live today in what he calls a graceless age. And he puts it simply, we can only do new deeds, not undo the old ones. This is a hard truth to accept. In talking too about our past, there's a question about remembering and forgetting. One of the operations of grief is a learned forgetfulness. And it seems to me that we re-narrate the past many times. We tell ourselves the story of how it ended or what I did. And in the telling, it changes subtly each time. I was speaking last week to a woman who is a survivor of torture. She said that she'd got to the point where she felt she could forgive, that is, in her own mind, release the person who had had such a hold over her, but she couldn't forget. Perhaps the operation of forgiveness is both to remember and release. And in this remembering and releasing, perhaps for our own sake, sometimes learn to forget. Which brings me to my second set of reflections about the truth. As well as acknowledging our powerlessness about changing the past, forgiveness asks us that we somehow tell the truth to ourselves. And if we're people of faith, we want to find a way to tell the truth to God. The topic of one of Jesus' last conversations was truth. With Pilate, the Roman governor who had the power to put him to death. 
When the stakes were at their highest, Pilate's question was, what is truth? And as a way into this, I want to talk about our identity. Am I a victim or a perpetrator? Christian faith will want to hold out the possibility of redemption. And for this to work, our identities remain, to use a word that's particularly current at the moment, fluid. Even if something catastrophic has happened in our lives, if we have done something hugely damaging to someone else, or if we have had something done to us, the way we narrate our past can sometimes cast us either as victim or perpetrator and lock us there. This is particularly true in the criminal justice system and in prison. But actually, I want to offer these reflections on this for those of us who are not engaged in that system, those of us living in the world out here. The philosopher Gillian Rose reflected deeply on these characterizations of ourselves as either permanent perpetrator or permanent victim. She reflected on what she called the unmendedness of the world. <coughs> she challenged her readers to resist the easy characterization of ourselves as somehow neutral observers of a horrible historical evil for her, the Holocaust. <coughs> this is, she argued, to rescue ourselves. What Gillian Rose says to 21st century Europeans is bracing. She argues that it's easy to develop a solidarity between those who think that deep down they're innocent of the world's wrongs. She argues not for a solidarity of the falsely innocent, but what's called by one of her interpreters, the solidarity of the shaken. A solidarity that comes from our acute awareness of the suffering in the world. Her writing has much to say to us about truth. She said that she was trying to find a way of building solidarity and community that's free from what she calls propaganda. The only way to avoid propaganda is honest prayer, she says, in which we're confronted with another reality, a depth of reality that remains, despite our attempts to domesticate it, strange to us. It's only this kind of religion, she says, that can ultimately dissolve the towering totalitarian certainties of fascism. Our faith is partly there to shake us out of our delusions of uninvolved innocence. This past Sunday, two days ago, we held at St. James's, as we do every year, London's service for the charity Road Peace, commemorating all the people who have been killed on London's roads in the past year. Borough mayors attend, representatives of the emergency services, the police choir sings. Ministers of the Crown come and speak about policy and campaigners come to ensure that the language is right. Not road traffic accidents, many of them are not accidents, but road traffic collisions or crashes. 
It's a service where raw emotions of anger, grief, despair, and fury are expressed at the futility of the crash that killed the one that they loved. And the often complicated aftermath where blame is too often attributed to the one who died. This year's congregation was newly raw with grief. One woman told of her daughter, who was a passenger in a car crashed by a drunk driver. He escaped injury, but she was trapped in the car as it caught fire. When she was told by the police of her daughter's death, she asked immediately if she should go with them to identify her body. There is no body, replied the police officer. All of us who heard her story were immensely moved by her courage and the courage of the people who come to that service. I also wonder, though, about another circle of people who are not there, but whose lives are intimately bound by the events brought before God that day. The drivers, the perpetrators, the ones whose inattention ruined the lives of so many in ending the life of one. The ones whose sometimes willful speeding or culpable negligence meant that they too live with a different kind of life sentence. I have sometimes wondered, given that church is a place to bring our grief and greed and guilt, what a service would look like for all the people who had killed someone on the road. The ubiquitous and ordinary use of roads is a useful metaphor for what I'm trying to say about the multiple identities with which we live as victims and perpetrators. In our common use of the roads, a cyclist easily becomes a driver on a different day, and all drivers are at some time pedestrians. A police officer becomes a driver, a medic becomes a cyclist, but at one point in time, we assume the identity, and in the event of a catastrophe like a crash, our identities are fixed. Victim, perpetrator, helper, bystander. The truth is we move all the time between these roles, on the roads as in life. Accepting this truth that our identities are not fixed as perpetrators or victims might help us cultivate compassion towards ourselves and towards others. Might help us live with the gap between the person we know we are and the person we want to be and also know that the only gaze which falls on all of these identities, the only gaze that contemplates us wholly, is that of God. Lastly, me. To live with myself, to know myself deeply enough to know how to ask for forgiveness and in turn raise the possibility that I can forgive. For Miroslav Volf, to be forgiven is two things. To receive both the accusation and the release from debt. How do we receive the accusation? By confessing and repenting. How do we receive forgiveness? 
by trusting that we're forgiven and becoming able to rejoice in the generous gift of the release. Sin confessed can be forgiven, but what the reformer Martin Luther called sin defended can't be forgiven. Therefore, in a modern context, it's the case that often I'm simply not aware of my own sin or my hypocrisy. Despite my best efforts to find it all and name it all, it's resolutely hidden from me. It can be seen by others, by you, and it can be seen by God. It's in part my growing awareness of this, which deepens as I mature, which takes me to church and by and large keeps me there. I try to follow Christ, commit to my practice of religion with others precisely because I know my need of God. Because I live in the gap between the person I am and the person I want to be. Because I recognize St. Paul's flesh and long for Christ's spirit. Because there are times when I have sat in the valley of the dry bones of my life and begged them to remember how to dance. The past, the truth, and me. Areas of life that I'm invited to excavate, discover, and explore in my search for the freedom that forgiveness might bring. And so finally, there's a false kindness in the assurances of some contemporary spiritual perspectives, which essentially say that being made in the image of God a fundamental Christian principle means that everything we say and do is fine. And there's a false strictness in the kind of spiritual practice that fruitlessly and repetitively talks about sin and little else. Both this false kindness and false strictness are methods of avoiding a path to freedom that's on offer in a forgiveness-shaped life. Gillian Rose wrote an amazing book when she knew that she herself was dying of cancer and had not much longer to live. Love's work is a message from the front line of suffering and forgiving, a message from the front line of living. To live, to love, is to be failed. To forgive, to have failed, to be forgiven forever and ever. Keep your mind in hell and despair not. This last comment was one that seemed to comfort Gillian Rose as she was dying. It's the wisdom of the 19th century Russian Orthodox monk Siluan, breathtaking in its simplicity and challenge. Keep your mind in hell and despair not. And it's on that thought that I end my reflections tonight. Because to me as a Christian, that life is a Christ-shaped life and the story of the human condition. The path to freedom is littered with my attempts to face the past, the truth, and myself. It's a path that leads, yes, 
to a kind of hell. But there we find others who've gone before us, who stand with us and help to hold us up so that we, in our turn, might be able to say to others as they arrive, keep your mind in hell, but despair not. Thank you. So now, if you would like to ask a question to uh, one or both of our speakers, please do write it down, hold it up, and it will be collected. And I will try and get through as many as I can. Some are starting to come through. Thank you. Uh, I'll just start with a, a couple. Um, Marion, when I was reading your book, I was very conscious that, that forgiveness there is very much a direction rather than a destination, mm. that it's a process. And you, you took steps forward and then you felt you were going back. And I just wondered whether when you're thinking through that, uh, uh, that direction of forgiveness, whether you think you forgive what happened to you or forgive what happened to Lucy? feel um, that Lucy and I are deeply connected, hmm. so it's not, I, I would never forgive the actions of the West, but what I've learned is, you know, and what happened to Lucy has made me have to look at myself and have to hold that tension really between the atrocity and the peace that passeth understanding. So it's, it's um, made me have to face my own need for forgiveness. Mm. Um, so I haven't, but it's also made me have to face, especially through my work in prison, the extreme cruel violent actions of others. Um, so it's quite a complex, mm. I find it hard to answer that question in a simple way. And maybe the question's a wrong one. I mean, maybe, <laughs> you know, sometimes yes. questions frame it in such a way mm. that, that you can't give a... I don't see it as a separate thing anymore. No, no, no thank you. Well, that's mm. and, and Lucy, as I was listening to you, I was thinking of... Um, an essay by Rowan Williams, who was reflecting on all the events of the 20th century and how he, he actually says in it that we must be aware of the dangers of forgiving too easily. And I wondered, because I heard that being touched on in what you said, what do you think he means by that? For the dangers of forgiving too easily. I think, I mean, it, I, I started really by saying that I think the church is 
got a lot to answer for in how we think about forgiveness. And I suppose what I, how I would interpret not forgiving too easily is, is that first part of the quotation I ended with, keep your mind in hell mm. and despair not. So that, you know, and, and in the Christian tradition, that's expressed by the story of Holy Week where Jesus harrows hell. Mm. He, he w it's, it's not a kind of, you know, the crucifixion comes before the resurrection. So to go, to go too quickly to what you imagine is what you should be feeling, which is, I guess, a, a forgiving of, of a person who's wronged you or a, re or a resolution. To go too quickly to that uh, resolution means that you're avoiding hell. You're not keeping your mind in hell. And to face that honestly is, I, I guess, uh, I mean, all, it's almost impossible. It's, it's, it's just before being completely impossible, but it, it's necessary in order truly to be free. The freedom, it, it's a kind of, Julian Rose was saying, a false delusion of innocence. It's mm. a false freedom mm -hmm. if that hasn't been faced. Mm. Yeah. Thank you. Could I add yes, something? Please. Yes, please. I feel that this whole business of premature, premature forgiveness is something that I've really looked at quite a bit. And, um, and after I'd made that vow to forgive the West and experience the murderous rage, I then felt this feeling of contempt, which came when I remembered my mother standing by Lucy's grave and all of us gathered there and I just realized that I was nowhere near even in that moment wanting to go in that direction because I realized that we all had to find a way of grieving and expressing the, the depth of this loss and in a way finding compassion for ourselves, kindness for ourselves before we could ever think of doing it for anyone else, let alone the West. Mm, thank you. Uh, thank you for your questions which are coming in. Let's begin them. Um, should forgiveness require repentance? A couple of questions have come in asking that. Lucy. Mm. I think that there's, I mean, we're talking about forgiveness being a, a journey of, of freedom or a journey to freedom. And there are some kinds, I guess there's different kinds of forgiveness. There must be a kind of forgiveness which is a release for the person who is forgiving um, but has not depended on the repentance of the person who is being forgiven. And that's often the case when to release yourself from an action that someone has done to you who then dies, to be able to address that mm. forgiveness, I, I believe is possible. Mm -hmm. So the, sh the short answer is, I don't think that, I think that forgiveness uh, defies a neat definition and that it's, it, fi it lives in the lived experience of each person in this, in this room. So any easy 
definitions of forgiveness are not are just not going to work. Mm. So the answer would be yes. When you go to a service, you, it suggests mm. that God won't forgive you unless you say, I'm sorry. Mm. And yet in the human world, mm. we're saying it might not be quite like that. Mm. I think, it, I mean, the, the language I would much rather use is... Uh, Take, take all the shoulds and oughts away and that, that it's, it's an irresistible invitation. It's an invitation to repent. And you know, it, it, confession, I'm sure you hear confessions and confession sometimes is, you know, it, I mean, it, it's described as a joyful sacrament. I think people who don't take part in confession think that it's probably really difficult and he I mean, it is, of course, difficult and heavy sometimes, but quite often there's laughter in confession because there is, there is a joy in the release of actually saying it as it is and facing yourself as you are. And of course, it, some of the annoying things about Jesus' stories around it are that people often don't say sorry, like right. the prodigal son right. that's already in yes. place. And yes. Anything you would like to add on whether people need to repent in, if they can be forgiven? Well... <coughs> In my experience, that hasn't been the case. <laughs> so I think Desmond Tutu said that um, there is a certain amount of self-interest in forgiveness in the sense, and, and I certainly feel that that's sort of what driven, has driven me in a way. It's this desire not to have my own life corrupted by what's happened so that I can live a full life and um, not become stuck in a place of bitterness, hatred or revenge. It's been very much about needing to be alive in a creative, loving way. <laughs> and that isn't dependent upon repentance. Yeah. Um, I'm just going to add uh, two questions here so that we, we get through as many as we can. Um, is forgiveness always personal? Is forgiveness ever collective? And maybe connected to this, should the people of Zimbabwe forgive Mugabe? Has come in there, which is a <laughs> little bit collective. Uh, and does forgiveness mean you don't have bad feelings about the person? Can we look to Lucy for the collective? Mm. I, I can't speak for the people of Zimbabwe, um, <laughs> but I... I think that there is some, I want to, s there's a personal experience here which, which changed my mind about this issue, collective apology. There were two things that happened. It was the, I, I watched on television uh, where, when David Cameron stood in the Commons and after the Bloody Sunday inquiry had reported and it had taken such a long time to report and he apologised on behalf of the government for that event and it was something about the way that he did it, the timeliness of it. It was very soon after the report reported. And I thought, okay, I, I can hear that as a, as a, as a, as a prime minister uh, apologizing for an event that had happened when he hadn't been responsible for it. And th the other personal experience actually was in this cathedral on the 20th anniversary of the ordination of women's service and I was sat over there somewhere. And for those of us who were in the first generations of mm. ordained women, 
I won't go into it, but it, it you know it wasn't easy. And I had no, I had no expectation that any note of apology would be at all in the service. It was very joyful. Everyone was very happy that there had been 20 years of ordained women. But the Archbishop of Canterbury, at the beginning of his sermon, uh, said sorry. I, I was, I was completely overwhelmed by that apology from an authority figure, I suppose, for something that he thought had been done that was wrong to the women who were gathered in the cathedral so from my personal experience i didn't know that i needed it <laughs> but it, when it happened i was i was released from something 20 years later mm. it was it was it was actually miraculous mm. thank you can we just yeah. look at the um sorry i was just thinking about this um collective yes. aspect <coughs> and it made me think of the uh, obviously the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa. Mm. But I had three months living on Vancouver Island doing some research into um, indigenous approaches to the healing of trauma. And when I was there, um, it was towards the end of a truth and reconciliation process for the First Nations people in relation to the residential schools. And um, most of my experience of being there was listening and to stories of terrible suffering that has been caused by the forced, enforced residential school system and the attempt. And when I got back, the then Prime Minister Stephen Harper said, um, apologised for the attempted cultural genocide of those people. And I... I know that the, the sort of politics that have followed since and the actual very, very slow way that how could this reconciliation happen after so much generational abuse, etc. But um, it just um, made, I just, there was something about even being able to use that phrase that I found quite impressive and I thought, you know, at least they're naming it mm. so something can happen from that moment. Mm. And, th th and so it just seemed, and I was thinking, how much does that happen here? You know, it's quite difficult to have a, a national cultural sense of forgiveness when something isn't being even faced or named. And can I just come back to that mm. second question specifically to you? Because I think there may be people in here tonight hearing you thinking, how, does it, how is this done? How does this feel when you've forgiven somebody that, that's done the things that they have to you and your family? Are the bad feelings still there even though forgiveness has been given or... Well, I just see, I don't see forgiveness as a noun that you tick off. Yeah. I see it as an ongoing verb in everyday life. And I don't see that I've reached a fixed place. As you noticed in reading the book, it sort of comes and it goes. And, mm. you know, there are times when, you know, I can, you know, I, I in just in family situations, it's, it's, um, something to do with just trying to pay attention to um, feelings that are going on and sometimes choosing not to express them or... Yes, 
Yes, thank you. Um, two questions here, and I think this is an important topic to bring into the conversation, about people who don't believe in forgiveness, that actually it might be a morally wrong thing to do, um, that you're somehow uh, skating over people's accountability. And there's a question here, how can you get someone who is terribly unforgiving and happy about that <laughs> to start to be more forgiving? Um, let's start there. Um, Lucy. I don't think you can. <laughs> and I think, I think one of the things that I'm learning listening to Marion is how... I'm, I'm using the word probably slightly wrongly, but how umbilically linked m m me understanding or recognizing or knowing my need of forgiveness is to the raising of the possibility that I might be able to forgive. So the journey inwards is the journey, that's the kind of adventurous, brave journey. So I think you, you can't then say to somebody, well, you can try, you should forgive, or I'd like to tell you how you can forgive. But that's, to me, start, it's starting in the wrong place. Mm. So the only way that I can make you do anything is by, by living it and inviting you into something that I know about. Otherwise, there's no integrity in that. That's why I think pre it's hard for priests, you know, to, to we're, we're, we're all a bunch of finger waggers, aren't we? And we're telling people what to do and Speak how to live. Speak for yourself. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, and, uh, you know what I mean. Yeah, of course. Yeah. It, it's very, that dynamic is so unhelpful. It, yes. it, and it's not, just, it's not just unhelpful, it actually prevents the action of forgiveness or prevents the journey of forgiveness because then it's mis misdiagnosed if you like and misdirected and it's all about you should forgive so I think you can't start there you have to start in here hmm. anything to add or shall I move um, on? well I'm just thinking about the process of restorative justice uh -huh. which is rooted in um, came from sort of Canada's um, process of, of sitting in a circle bringing everyone together who've been harmed by the actions of someone. So the members of the community, the so-called perpetrators and family, the so-called victim and family, and just sitting. And um, the word forgiveness isn't in the circle. <laughs> it's very much about each person having a chance to talk about the context of what happened and what was going on in their lives. And gradually, as those feelings are expressed, something can change. But um, one of the things that I stays in my mind of someone that I read recently was that the minute you put the word forgiveness in there, it stops the process. Mm. <laughs> that, you know, it's a matter of going with what's actually arising for each person. And it's not within a... You know, it's like my thing about needing to reclaim the words, but I think these words can really cause people to shut down rather than dare to express what they're actually feeling. And, and there again, there aren't sort of right and wrong feelings in the process. It's, so you're not, 
repressed or suppressed by an, an ethic that's expecting you to be a certain way. Mm. There are two or three questions here in the same area. And I think it's coming from this idea that forgiveness may be something that we discover more than do. <laughs> Nevertheless, as somebody has written here, how do I forgive when I suffer with the consequences of what happened to me every day? Well, I think in my experience, it, I, I think there's something about having a strong intention to want to do that. Um, and once that came, then things came into my life, unexpected things that helped me move in that direction. So I think just if that person really wants to forgive, uh, you know, whether they're <coughs> ready or not, if they have a sense that that's the best way to go, just to actually really, you know, if they have a faith to pray about it, if they haven't, just to really focus and, you know, maybe write down, you know, this is what I would like to do, this is how I would like to proceed and begin to trust what actually comes up emotionally or, or, you know, somebody coming into your life. I mean, that's how it worked for me. I had no idea how it could happen, but, you know, it's led to this moment of being here with all of you. So <laughs> it's quite, to me, it's very mysterious, but it seems that having an intention to want to do it does somehow open up what I would call grace. Uh, and somebody else in a very similar vein has said, I understand the need for forgiveness intellectually, but I just have practical difficulty and resistance. <laughs> Are there any daily steps that will help? How do you do mm. it? <laughs> yeah, do I? Do I do it? I mean, yeah. <laughs> I, I think that there is so much in ordinary life that tries to tries to shut uh, I'm not going to use the right words tries to shut our hearts if I can put it like that because we we often need protection you know sometimes it's it's the right thing to do to to shut ourselves because we need protection from the harm uh, either of our past or of, or of the present but I think in in the shaping of a forgiveness of a forgiving life maybe uh, we are living that right now. I, in this moment, we have some... Uh, choice is quite a hard word, but we have some choices about the deeds that we do from today or the, the ways mm. that we act from today. We don't have any choices about what happened five minutes ago, but we have them from now. So for me, my, I, I pray because it's part of a just my spiritual practice, but almost the only prayer is to, you know, prize my heart open, God, please, can I help, help me keep it open? Because there's so much that is trying to persuade us to, to shut it down. And so, I, so for me, that, but that, that, would, uh, that would be true for the operation of love, of forgiveness, uh, and all of those, you know, words that echo around churches like this. 
but I, I, I also think that forgiveness is not what we think it is. Whenever I, whenever I think I know what forgiveness is, it, it moves. I think it's elusive and mysterious, highly creative, imaginative, and we, we don't really have words to put around it to say what it is. And I also think that quite a lot of the time we can't. And when we can, we can. And until we can, we can't. And it's being gentle with ourselves about that bit before we can. Uh, and Oscar Wilde, of course, once said, you know, always forgive your enemies, nothing annoys them more. <laughs> What about those like Martha Nussbaum, the philosopher, who actually says you must get rid of anger and forgiveness because both are actually still in control mode. Mm. They're not about love because to say I forgive you, it means that you've got the control button and love is not about that. What do you say to people like her? I... I think it depends on where you start from as to whether you think that's a good idea or not. Mm. And my sense is that that's not a very good idea for people who are powerless to start with. Mm -hmm. So I think, I mean, a lot of theology is done from the top down. So it's all about giving up, or giving up agency, giving up autonomy, that love is giving yourself away. Oh, that's that's mm. all good stuff. But if you've started from the edge and you've started from a place where you didn't have any agency or your agency was removed from you, then your path to salvation is entirely different. It's about, it's about not being immediate. It's, it's, the, it's, the, it's the easy forgiveness, not going straight for forgiveness, not going straight for humility. It's a redeemed humility. And for, and for women, I think women do understand that uh, in a very particular way. One of the b ways to illustrate that is um, Jesus put a towel around his waist and washed the feet of his disciples. That's the kind of picture of love and servanthood. And I think for, for, for women and for many others who find themselves on the, on the edges and on the margins of a, of, of a power dynamic, we have to learn to stand first before we kneel. So our humility is a redeemed humility. It's not humility that's too easy. And so I think that the, the, part, the path of forgiveness and the path of love is rocky. And if you start from the edge, then you know Jesus called the woman from the edge to come and stand in the center before she continued through the rest of her life. So the, the path is different and it, it depends entirely where you start from. So for people without agency, I, do, I don't agree with the philosopher that you've just mm, quoted. Uh, time is nearly over, and there is a question here that's specifically for you, if I may ask it. If you had met Rose West, you would have forgiven her, but what else would you ask her or say, and why? Um, if that occasion arose as a possibility, I wouldn't know until I got there. Mm. Um, I would just, uh, I would just sit and wait. 
Have you imagined that meeting? Well, I, I was, I would be, I have thought of it as a possibility, but it, I mean, it took, I remember when I was working in Bristol prison in the early days and I spent some time on um, a lifer's wing and we were just left. Um, it was an extraordinary afternoon and um, and I think I remember asking them, do you, you know, how do you live with what you've done? Do you think about it a lot or do you try not to think of it? How do you live with it? And um, they all wanted to talk about it because nobody had really asked them. Mm. I mean, they have psychologists, but they'd insisted they didn't want psychology in there because they always thought that, you know, things that they said could be taken against them. So it was an amazing opportunity. And, um, and I remember one man saying, yes, we think about it all the time, but we never talk to each other about it. And then one man said, it's taken me 10 years to accept what I did, to face and accept it. And I'd had this experience just before we found out what happened to Lucy. I remember driving to my mother's house and thinking, what would it feel like to know what had happened to Lucy? What if this really is something about that? And completely out of blue, into my mind came, I would want to meet them, but I wouldn't want to meet them for 10 years. So I don't know where that time of 10 years comes from, but it's now 20 odd years since we found out what happened to Lucy. And, um, and I wrote the le I sent the letter in 2008. So that was 14 years after we found out. And I think when I sent it, you know, there was a sense that if a meeting arose from that, I would be ready to do that. Um, but I also, I don't know that there are any, you know, what are the questions? Mm. <laughs> I mean, what can, I mean, when we work with people in prison, in, with the Forgiveness Project, um, we never ask them what we've, they've done, but they often want to tell us and we listen, but that's not the purpose of why we're there. And your whole point you're making about right now we can make choices, I think that's part of what I like to talk about sometimes, you know, that you can actually make decisions about your life that mean that you can choose to not do things or to look at things, you know, it's not a, so if that comes up, you know, I think that's kind of what I'm trying to express when I talk about my experience. I'm trying to give an example of what I found helpful and mm. that that is sometimes picked up on. Mm. Um, but it is the most moving, fulfilling work because it's completely undone a lot of my prejudices and my sense that of, you know, victim perpetrator I mean those roles those I mean a lot of the work's very much about helping them to recognize what has led them to commit the crime that they did which is usually a ruined childhood um, it's very nearly eight o'clock and I just wondered I mean my guess is if if everybody else is a little bit like me um, it has been an extraordinary provocative evening where we've been made to think 
about the depth of words we often use too easily. And I just wondered if you could give us a final thought to take out of those doors as we make our way home and start our lives again tomorrow. <laughs> um, Lucy. I think I would say, try not to be afraid. Because I think that the, 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 the single most powerful mechanism of us not being able to live with ourselves or face our past or tell the truth to ourselves about ourselves or to God is, is because we're afraid. So to try not to be afraid and to try to increase our trust. Marion. Oh, I was going to say trust. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> say it. <laughs> yes, I, I think that dare to trust, dare, if there's something that you really want to forgive, really focus on the intention of that and dare to start trusting and listening and feeling what arises within you and what comes into your life. Thank you. Um, you mentioned the Lord's Prayer. Of course, Christians ask that we forgive as we are forgiven every day. What I'm always struck about is immediately after that, there's talk about bread for the morrow, as if the two might be connected. <laughs> and that actually, one of the few things we know about forgiveness is that it stops the eternal echo of the bad things that have been done. It, it, it stops what Hannah Arendt called the irreversible flow of history. Um, and maybe in that prayer, placing talk of forgiveness next to talk of tomorrow and of bread that feeds us uh, is more <laughs> intentional than we might first think. Um, I'm struck also from the conversation here that we've had this evening and from your contributions and your honesty um, that when I was reading a, a little bit around forgiveness, I came across a very simple comment by um, Anita Roddick, founded mm. The Body Shop. And she just said that she had discovered in her own life that forgiveness is as mysterious as love. And if that's the case, I just wonder whether that maybe says something very, very important. And I want to thank you both very much for all that you've brought here this evening, both of you. I know everybody out there is thinking, what I'm thinking in here is that we've been in the presence of two very remarkable people. And uh, from all of us, thank you so much.